Welcome to Veterans Connected, where maintenance and reliability expert and military veteran Eric Bevavino connects with fellow veterans in industry during each episode, where they exchange their experiences and discuss the transition from the military to industry and the paths and resources that led them to where they are today. The Veterans Connected podcast is proudly produced by the industry's leading network and learning community, Mobius Connect. Eric, over to you. Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Bevavino host of the Mobius Connect podcast, focused on connecting military veterans to the maintenance and reliability community. My aim here is to bridge the understanding gap between the military and civilian worlds, thereby improving the veteran transition journey and ultimately providing hope and a helping hand to any of our brothers and sisters out there struggling to find their way. We'll do this by interviewing veterans who have successfully made it through. For this session, We've chosen to interview one such Navy veteran and a longtime friend of mine, Scott Morris, whose fascinating and patriotic story is a must listen for anyone interested in joining us on this mission. So welcome, Scott. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Thanks I'm excited. for the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited for this, uh, for this time together since I moved out of Connecticut, haven't made that many trips to Framingham as I used to. So it's always good to get back together and, uh, and have a little chat. So why don't we start from the beginning? Like, where'd you grow up? Uh, what was your life like in the early years? And how did that lead you to joining the Navy? Well, I grew up just outside of Boston. And, and when I say just outside of Boston, I was actually closer to downtown Boston than uh, most people who lived in Boston. So um, it was uh, where I grew up at Boston was a di very different place at the time, uh, very blue collar. Um, you know, there was uh, just downturn uh, in the economy. Um, and uh, it was, it was uh, again, very different. And I think the thing that really uh, got me interested in going to the Navy in particular, because I always thought about going into the military, was uh, in 1980, they had a Sail Boston event um, where all the tall ships came in. And as part of that, they also had the uh, aircraft carrier John F. Kennedy and a few cruisers come in. Uh, and I get to tour, you know, uh, a bunch of those ships. And uh, being up on the flight deck of uh, an aircraft carrier, I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. So the JFK was in. Uh, is that where the, they have that where the Constitution is docked now in uh, Boston actually, or a different place? Some of the ships were over by where the Constitution is, but this one was actually at the South Boston uh, Navy Annex because it was just too big to get further in uh, to the harbor. It was actually right across from the airport. And uh, I like to tell everybody that uh, that that's when I fell in love with F-14s way before Top Gun. One of the coolest jets out there and my other favorites, F-4 too, but uh, from my modeling days as a kid. But yeah, that must have been a, a really impactful experience for you to get up on the deck of an aircraft. How old were you then? Do you remember? Yeah, well, I was in the ninth grade. So I was about, what, 14 or so. Hmm. Um, but, uh, it had a, a really big impression on me. Um, it, it just seemed so cool. Uh, all this stuff, uh, that, you know, and everybody, uh, or a lot of the people that were on it weren't much older than me. Um, so I was like, oh, this is something I could do. 
<laughs> hey, so that uh, further enhanced your your love for aviation. Did you already have a sort of a, a proclivity towards planes uh, before that, or was that where you really uh, got into aviation and aircraft? Well, uh, it was. Uh, I lived under one of the flight paths for uh, Logan Airport, so we just kept seeing jets go over uh, constantly. Uh, so everybody would, or most people in my house would get mad because they were loud. I thought it was exciting. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. So the the Tomcats were on deck there. You got to walk around, meet some folks your own age. Did that uh, take you straight to the recruiter's office or did you think about it for a couple of years and then, then make the plunge or, or how did that go? Well, I still had a few years to go. Um, but uh, it, it solidified it. It was that's what I was going to do because uh, it, at the time, um, you know, back in the '80s, uh, going through there, there weren't the options or the uh, the information there is now about going to college. Uh, so I never thought that college was an option, and my options were stay where I was. Uh, and there there were a lot of bad things going on at the time, and I was like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> So, no, no, no doubt. So, so that led you to what boot camp in Great Lakes? Were you uh, there in the summertime or the wintertime, or did you go somewhere else? Yep. Yeah. Two weeks after I graduated high school, I was in Great Lakes and enjoying boot camp and, uh, you know, wondering why I had this knit hat on my head in the middle of the summer. <laughs> um, you know, it wasn't a pleasant experience, but, uh, you know, looking back on it, it was very transformative because uh, there were so many people from so many different parts of the country. It really gave you an appreciation uh, of people from different backgrounds, you know, coming together with a purpose. That's yeah, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the Navy, the diversity of character and thought um, all coming together in one place as one team. So you went to Great Lakes and then where'd you go after that? Well, you know, when I went in or when I originally signed up, uh, I uh, was going to go the aviation route. And uh, a few days before I went in, um, they, uh, they gave me some additional tests and said, hey, you want to go nuke power? So I ended up going the nuke power, um, uh, you know, uh, pipeline. Uh, went down to Orlando after uh, a school in Great Lakes uh, to nuclear power school down in Orlando um, for about eight months or so. Uh, then up to Connecticut for six months of prototype training and then off to the boat. So did you end up getting on an aircraft carrier, nuclear powered aircraft carrier? Did you just uh, do submarines or both <laughs> or what do you this is no, part I, of, this is part of your story that I can't clearly a uh, place in my mind. Yeah. So uh, I ended up going nuclear power and ended up on a submarine. So probably the furthest away from <laughs> aviation you could be, um, you know, in the, in the, you know, the, the, the sore tube, you know, uh, under the ocean uh, for long stretches of time. But uh, I, I wouldn't change a thing. I enjoyed uh, the submarine uh, culture, the submarine life. Um, I enjoyed the people, uh, the mission, 
so even though I, I have a love of aviation, um, a lot, you know, which I've, I've scratched that itch by uh, being part of the Fighter Pilot podcast now, <clears throat> but um, it, I was very happy. I did end up getting on a nuclear power aircraft carrier, and uh, that, the interesting thing about that was my brother ended up fixing F-18s on an aircraft carrier. And I got to visit him on a tiger cruise from uh, Hawaii to the West coast. And it was interesting because I had to take leave to go on a Navy ship to, uh, to do that. Interesting. So did you always tell him that you were smarter? That's why you went into nuclear power. You got drafted because of uh, your, your test scores are a little bit higher. (laughs) You know, everybody is where they are for for a reason. And I have to say that after seeing an aircraft carrier and how it works, absolutely fascinating, still enthralled with the, the aviation aspect, uh, I made the right choice. Nice. Nice. So, uh, you don't have any problem with enclosed small spaces being underwater, not seeing the sun for quite some time and all that worked out for you. You know, when I first went down, um, I thought it would be an issue after time. It was just, you know, there you were, um, you, you had a job to do. You had a, a lot of great people around you, uh, and you had a, an important mission. So there was definitely a purpose. Same, same thing, different day. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And really, I believe one of the reasons why so many military veterans are attracted to the maintenance and reliability community as they transition is fundamentally nuclear power and and many of the maintenance systems, whether it's in the army, the Navy, the Air Force, Marines, or Coast Guard are just so well put together. Because yep. if, if something breaks when it's not supposed to, people die or, or something really bad happens, right? And um, I, I assume you were well-educated in, in all, the, all the procedures and, and maintenance and reliability through that process. Did that help you as you transitioned out? I mean, how long did you stay in, first of all? Uh, what was the so, tour of active duty for you? So I, I was in for eight years. Um, the first year and a half or so were, were school, you know, uh, there was boot camp, but then there was school. Uh, and that's one thing I, I have to stress, uh, you know, for people who haven't been in the military, the military is very big on education, um, especially the technical education, because all the services are very technical in nature. Um, so when they, when you go to school, I mean, here it was after a year and a half of uh, graduating high school, I was operating and maintaining a nuclear reactor on a submarine 400 feet under the ocean. So I, I would go through and uh, stack the military training up against any training anywhere in the world as far as uh, the completeness, uh, the rigor that it goes through and the reason why because in the military everything is about capability and readiness you have to have uh capability and readiness to be able to do your job if you have broken equipment you can't do it um if you have broken equipment people don't take you seriously um so 
when uh, when I was in, I would say we were very capable. Um, you know, there weren't a lot of breakdowns, or if there were, um, they were fixed uh, uh, expeditiously. Because uh, if you look at it, where I was, we were thousands of miles away from the ocean or from a uh, coast, and there was me and 130 guys on a submarine. No one was coming to help us. So we had to have that technical knowledge, not only to operate, but to maintain. You bring up a great point. Uh, mission readiness. I think the term for the messaging, if any of our crit critical systems went down, was CASREP, casualty report. I assume it's the same way today, but though I've been, been out for a while and I remember towing a submarine being part of a, the crew that was towing a former nuclear powered ballistic missile submarine through the Panama Canal and getting our tow line, which was part of a mission critical piece of a diving and salvage boat actually parted. It didn't come completely apart, but it got stuck on something. And in the last set of locks, we could actually see the bridge. I believe it's on, on the Rodman side from where we were. And it was a boom. And I think three or four strands parted and nobody got hurt. Thank goodness. It was a wire rope, but it was mission critical. And, you know, when those things happen, the captain doesn't look very good. I mean, nobody looks very good, even though it wasn't anybody's fault. It wasn't the captain's fault or anybody else, but it does render your ship only partially mission capable at that time. And, and nobody wants that as you, as you run lean, let alone being stuck in the middle of the ocean with <laughs> 130 of your favorite, your best friends. Uh, you know, submarines don't do too well topside. If I remember in the short time yeah. that I was on board a submarine <laughs> and uh, you know, nobody wants that for sure. Yeah. yeah. But uh, you know, just a, another thing, you know, with that, um, I'm sure when that line parted, there was contingencies for it. People knew what to do if something like that happened to mitigate any sort of uh, effect from that casualty. Uh, and that's, we, we were always training on things like that. Um, something goes wrong and it was always what if, what if, what if, what if. And you would train constantly to that what if so you could react to it. Um, and minimize uh, any sort of uh, disruption or something getting out of hand. Um, and I think that's a, another skill that uh, a lot of civilian, um, you know, companies can use. Um, people being able to think on their feet and think through issues very quickly. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And, and I have uh, really yet to find a similar type of intensity because we're not dealing in the civilian world with life and death situations every day or, or the potential of causing a casualty to a multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar ship or piece of equipment, uh, let alone the, you know, the lives of our, our teammates on board. So interesting. Well, good. So after you uh, transitioned out of the military, after your eight years, you know, what was that like for Scott Morris? I mean, how did you start looking? I mean, I know my story is, is very clunky and probably boring, but um, how, how did yours go uh, coming out? Did you go through the 
tap classes, the transition assistance program, or did you just kind of blow those off and say, I, I got this, I'm good. I mean, how did it go for you? Well, at, coming up on my, my eight year point, uh, you know, there was the decision on whether to stay in or get out. Um, and it was a tough decision because I had, when I went in, I was like, I'm going to make this a career. And then, uh, as time went on, you know, about that eight year point, it was, it would be really cool to have a family and <laughs> having a family on a sub or in being stationed on a submarine weren't necessarily, uh, a good mix, uh, because it, of the commitment, uh, you know, for the, the service. So, uh, weighing everything, I knew I was going to miss it and I still miss it. Um, but I made the decision to get out. So I, I did, uh, you know, got ready to, uh, get out, uh, you know, went to resume writing classes, went to the transition assistance classes, and then I get out and there I was, uh, out with no job um, and we were going into a recession. So what, what's, what's gonna happen? And uh, back in the day, uh, it was, you looked for a job, everything was paper-based. Mm -hmm. It was sending your resume to different places. It was looking at the help wanteds uh, in the newspapers. And, uh, you know, just looking at the different, you know, maintenance jobs, uh, I went through and I, I think I had a, a pretty solid uh, career in the Navy with a lot of things that were important, were very technical, but I had a really tough time translating that into things that uh, people on the outside would see. Um, so, okay, I, I was uh, an engineering uh, uh, engine room supervisor. Okay, what does that mean? How does that relate to anything at my company? Um, you know, I was a Q, QA supervisor for uh, a submarine. You know, I was a lead QA guy on a submarine. Okay, how does that translate to the civilian world? So there was a lot of, um, you know, trying to break that barrier because it's a different language. Things that you take for granted in the Navy, the the acronyms, the, the things, um, you know, just the day-to-day -day stuff uh, that you're doing that's important, uh, that means something, mean absolutely nothing to uh, people on the outside because they don't understand. Um, and me coming out, I didn't understand, you know, people in the civilian world. So it was a, it was a really big transition, um, I would say. But, yeah. uh, you know, I, I did the, you know, the one good thing, you know, I, I signed up for the post office because they love veterans. Uh, so that they, they hired me for, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Christmas season. Uh, and I had sent out probably about 50 resumes to different companies. And there was always one that stuck out in my mind. Uh, and this was, uh, and I'm going to, prop it up immunogen it was a biotech company it still is a biotech company here in uh the boston area and um i i looked at it was like well biotech that seems pretty interesting uh and then they had you know pretty good benefits you know in, in tuition assistance and all these things that was like 
oh, I'd love to, you know, work there. But, you know, this was back in September when I was putting out my resume. Uh, didn't hear anything until mid-December. Uh, so almost three months later, two and a half months, three months later, uh, went in on an interview uh, on a Friday afternoon at two o'clock. And they offered me the job at six o'clock that night. So I was pretty uh, happy about that. Nice, nice. So, so was that an entry-level position in maintenance or was it a supervisory position? I mean, what did uh, you sign up for at Immunogen? So it was, they were just looking for someone to do maintenance. And I had the background, but one thing that really came across uh, because uh, biotech company or, you know, pharmaceutical companies in general, they have to deal with the FDA and regulations. And I think, you know, my training uh, with maintenance and reliability, uh, I think, set me apart from a lot of other people coming in. But the icing on the cake was the fact that I understood regulatory agencies uh, because we were constantly getting inspected you know, in the nuclear power uh, operations from the, uh, from naval reactors. Every year we had to go through a regulatory audit um, to ensure we were safe and compliant. Uh, and that carried over really well to, uh, you know, the, the um, biotech industry in particular, but it actually has applicability to a lot of industries that are regulated. Oh, and that's a great point. Um, first off, I hadn't heard that story from you before, so thank you for sharing. And, and it really is, I mean, uh, I've gone back to the inspection days and and what we used to call in the Navy, the sweat X's and, you know, a list of, a checklist of things that you had to do and a process that you had to go by and what, what you might expect when folks, you know, came on board and they were looking deeply into every aspect of what was going on for for the right reasons right but just having having that sort of attention to detail and mindset is uh is valuable and can be rare and i hadn't i hadn't thought about that before you just mentioned it so i think it'd be helpful for our listeners too as well because following uh procedures being able to pass inspections and all that type of stuff that's something that we don't usually talk about though i would i would say that the stereotype is that military folks are comfortable in a regimented controlled structured environment and all that type of thing and that's that's likely true but the um antithesis of that i guess would be that we don't need that structure to to thrive i mean that structure gives you a a baseline or, or perhaps a paradigm is probably not the best word, but, you know, um, an operating structure to learn in your formative years of processes that have been honed over time that are effective and efficient at yep. keeping things together. So I think that's uh, part of it too, the form of year formative years uh, of education in these systems that have been developed over time, uh, perhaps some rules that have been written in blood, certainly sweat and tears over time um, is, is also a benefit of having veterans in the program. So interesting. Well, that, well that's good. And, and so you started out, they needed somebody to do maintenance. They liked the fact that you could 
you know, deal with government agencies and past yeah. inspections and all that. And and did that lead to leadership positions right away? Or was that something that took some time or how did that go? Well, you know, I was at the that company for about two years and it, it really um, gave me insight to the larger industry, not just that small company. Uh, what was nice is it was a small company. So it, it, felt comfortable like it was in the, I was in the service because we were all focused on a mission of, of getting a treatment out to sick patients. So it, it was very similar uh, that we're all in this, you know, we had a goal, um, we had a purpose uh, and we moved on. Um, but about two years later, um, I transitioned to a, a different company, uh, same industry. Uh, and within a year of being there, I, I was into a supervisor position. Fantastic. And and you mentioned this, Scott. I mean, it's one of the things that I think that we all look for coming out of the service is not only camaraderie and and being able to get along with your teammates and, you know, one team, one goal, but that mission structure, that service before self, I mean, really uh, working for a higher cause is not always present in for-profit companies, right? So you landed in biotech and, you know, working on what, what I know to be, at least in the recent experience that I have with you, rare disease production of, of, medicines, treatments, yeah, you know, the right terminology for, for rare genetic diseases. I mean, that's, that's pretty cool, right? I mean, that's uh, kind of goes with the theme of helping people out. I can see how that would resonate with you. Yep. Well, the, um, you know, there's, there's a story I tell um, and it's a powerful story and it's um, something that, has stuck with me and uh, it, it just, you know, why, why do I stay in, in biotech? Why is it important? And uh, it was, you know, soon after I became a supervisor and, and we were having a, you know, our, our normal weekly staff meeting and, and one of the research scientists came into uh, our meeting, he said, oh, can I, can I talk to you, your group? Uh, because we're responsible for utilities and maintenance and, uh, you know, proper equipment operation. And um, he, he said, hey, um, you know, thanks for all you do. I just wanted to, you know, let you know that uh, we're in the, the process of clinical trials. And um, the uh, we're, we're treating patients right now, but we're running out of product. So we, we have to go through and, you know, make more product. And uh, we need to make sure that everything is working correctly and we don't have any breakdowns. Said the consequences of any breakdown and we lose this run is six kids are going to die. And that'll that, get your attention. Huh? That um, hit me like a lightning bolt. And it's something that stays with me to this day, 
because number one, it, you know, was like, I am in the right place because, you know, the company I'm with is helping people. But number two, it drove home the necessary, uh, the, the necessary things of maintenance and reliability. That equipment had to be running correctly for the duration of that run. And if it didn't, there were going to be major consequences. Um, and it wasn't just consequences as, oh, we, we couldn't sell something or, or whatever. The, this was real impact on people's lives. So uh, it, it really tied everything together. And that's something that, uh, like I said, I've shared with a lot of people, uh, but that's why I'm, I do what I do. Well, that's fantastic. Thanks for sharing, Scott. I mean, very powerful story. I think you may have told me that story when we uh, we worked together uh, many moons ago, but um, I think there were some other stories maybe from your, your co-workers as well that that cemented the, the service before self um, similarity in in biotech, which I mean, for veterans listening to this this podcast, they may say, "Hey, oh, well, I don't even know what that is. Why why should I get into it?" So, I think it's great. So, thank you for sharing sharing that, and um, you know, it makes that transition I think a little bit smoother. If you got at least you got at least that mission piece of it taken care of in your why and you know why am I here? Why am I doing this every day? Why am I dedicated to this mission? Because you know, people can live and die based on the outcome. So, so very cool, very cool, very important. So what's next? Let me see. So what's your life been like after transitioning in the service? What do you miss most? You mentioned uh, earlier that, that you still miss being in the Navy you transitioned to start a family. I know that you've been successful at that and your kids are, up and grown at least your your old youngest is 19 now and you know you're about to be empty nesters but what what do you miss the most now that it's sort of really romanticized in your brain as is in the distant past yeah. what would you say some of the things are there so the the fact that um we were all in it together um and when i was on the boat it was literally we we're all in this together um that you, you met so many people from so many different backgrounds, ge geography, um, and you learned so much from everyone. Um, you know, just because I was a city kid from Boston, I could relate to, uh, you know, uh, a, a friend from, you know, rural, rural Kentucky. Um, you know, I, I could do that uh, in you could always rely on people. Um, and it, it sounds cliche, but um, I may not like someone or that person may not like me, but I would trust my life with them. Um, you know, so that there was just, the, you know, a bond that you had uh, that is a lot different than uh, it is on the outside. I miss that. Um, I miss the, the, different things you would do um, because there are some things that were just, you know, I can't believe I'm here uh, in, in doing this. Uh, 
So um, I, I miss those things. Now, that being said, I'm, I'm pretty okay with where I am now too. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, there's a time and a place for everything. You know, we're all young at some point and thank goodness cell phones weren't even invented at the time that we were running around doing, doing the stuff we were doing, but, uh, but that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. So let's move on to leadership uh, next. You know, what role did leadership play in your military experience? Uh, did you have leadership roles on the boat while you're on the submarine? And at what age did you have so, those roles? So there, there's um, over time you, you've gone through, or at least I've gone through, um, there are managers and there are leaders. Uh, when you go through some of the most uh, effective leaders may not have been in a managerial position or a supervisory position, but they set the tone for what went on. So leadership, uh, you, you can be a leader and a manager at the same time. So one of the things I want to stress is just because you report into someone uh, or you have people reporting to you, it doesn't make you a leader. Um, but when we go through and in, in, in the military itself, I think you're exposed very quickly to good leaders and bad leaders. You know uh, and you learn from both what to do and what not to do. Um, there, there were different leadership positions where uh, you were qualified uh, on things. Um, so again, uh, you know, I was 20, I was qualified to maintain and run a nuclear power plant at 22. I was actually, uh, responsible for, you know, the startup of a nuclear power plant, um, on a national asset that was probably valued at, you know, several hundred million dollars. And I got that opportunity to, to do that. Um, on the, on the flip side, that was a role that you were doing, but what is leadership? Um, leadership is really getting the best out of people uh, to perform a mission. Uh, and it's really about giving them the tools uh, and the, the bandwidth to go through and allow growth and allow them to develop. Um, so, I guess looking at it, there's the leadership or the management, and it's not necessarily the same. No, it's a it's a great answer, and thank you for that. I think uh, you know, provocative in a in a couple ways. I mean, first first off, uh, I took out of that you can lead from a position of more of influence just by your actions. I mean, there are certain folks in the department or the division that that set the tone by the example that they set, the the amount of safety that they're they're concerned about, and and then I think you finished up with one of the phrases that I was taught in the Navy, and I think it's taught in multiple services, but certainly in the Navy for sure. It's uh, take care of your people, and they'll take care of you, and that is not necessarily prevalent throughout you know the all of society. Right. So, so 
wanting to learn and wanting to get better at what you do as a as a leader, as a manager, as a as a performer, uh, you know, high performer, carries through to wanting your folks to achieve what they want to do in life as well. So, so I think you've highlighted a couple of very important things, and and also learning what good, bad, and really mediocre leadership looks like if you're in a new duty station every couple of years you're exposed to new stuff all the time whether it's well it, and yeah, i think ahead. that's that's the thing when you're on the outside you may have the same boss for years um <laughs> where we're in the military your boss could be changing on a month-to-month basis depending on uh rotation or uh advancements or you know change of duty station so you get to uh experience quite a breadth of, uh, of, uh, experience, I guess. Well, and, and that's valuable, right? I mean, who at 22 or 24, 26 years old has experienced four or five different leaders, potentially very, very good leaders with a lot of practice also potentially not so great leaders, but just the breadth of, of experience in those positions, how it felt, uh, to be part of those different teams and what you want to take forward, I think is is really perhaps under misunderstood, underutilized that that type of thing. When folks come out, can't necessarily make that translation of running a nuclear reactor to you know turning a wrench. You know, there there's there are hidden gems here. There are hidden responsibilities that I think if if more folks knew what they were getting from Scott Morris as he stepped off the boat and came back to Boston to start a family, probably would have gotten more looks uh, than, you know, just part-time at the post office. And then, then finally, you know, serendipitously landing in, in biotech, which, you know, just happened to be the way of the world in Boston going forward, which you, probably didn't know at the time, right? But it ended up manifesting and ended up um, allowing you to stay in the same place for quite some time, have a stable family and, yep. you know, do beautiful things. So yep. that's that's fantastic. All right, Scott. So we're moving through the program here. And, and I think the next thing on the list here is to ask you what sort of advice you would give any service member planning to transition to the civilian world that you wish you had when you were back at that phase of your life. Yep. So I have to say that right now uh, there are so many resources for uh, people coming out of the military that uh, weren't available before. I mean, (laughs) the internet, you know, whatever your your views on the internet are, there's a lot of great information out there um, where you can get things that um, you may not have gotten before. Like I know when I interview people, one of the first things I ask them is, what do you know about my company? Um, because it's an easy internet search and it's a something that right away, you know, if someone is just looking for a a job and have done their homework, um, or, you know, this is just another thing. Um, So did they go through and make the effort to at least find out what the company was about? And that's a a quick internet search. Um, 
there's different groups. I mean, here we are doing this podcast and, you know, this is something that wasn't available. You know, you can do searches on podcasts, veterans organizations, um, you know, LinkedIn, uh, you know, going through, if you, you type in Navy, you, you get all these people who haven't, you know, uh, were in the Navy um, because networking is huge. Uh, you know, knowing people is huge because uh, if I know I'm hiring someone, uh, if someone is vouching for them uh, or know them, uh, I'm going to look at them before I look at someone I don't know. Um, and these are things you can leverage. Uh, I would say that, you know, if, if someone uh, applied for a job that I had open and they were from a submarine background, I know their training. I know where they came from. Um, you know, I know what the capabilities are. I, I could pretty much, uh, you know, know what their day-to-day -day life was for a certain period of time. Um, and there, that's a connection that you would have. But because I'm a veteran, I understand that. So uh, there's a lot of things that people can do as far as research. Uh, and being prepared uh, more than the other guy uh, or, or girl, uh, you know, going through uh, knowing how to hold yourself, you know, it, and it seems like a silly thing, but if someone comes into an interview, um, you know, professional looking and, uh, you know, looking the part, you know, that, that visually is saying that, you know, you're ready for the job, uh, where if someone maybe came in unkempt, uh, you know, with a laissez-faire attitude, um, you know, it makes a difference. And I know people have been through personnel inspections. So, you know, this is just a, another personnel inspection when you come through the door, you know, putting your best foot forward because your first impression is a lasting one and you don't get a second chance for a first impression. Um, and, you know, just understanding that, um, with a, a private company, there may not be quite as much structure, uh, but there's a mission, uh, with that company in whatever it is, what is that mission? And if you understand that mission and you can go through and, uh, you know, express that, uh, that, you know, what the mission is, uh, it can be very helpful. Without a doubt. So are you a hiring manager now, Scott, in your current position? I mean, you have the ability to, you know, when positions come open and, and your team, you, you have to screen candidates and all that type of stuff. No, but I, I do have uh, contacts with uh, a lot of hiring managers um, right now. And, and this is, you know, just with my trajectory, I went from a person uh, turning wrenches uh, and doing maintenance uh, to now I'm, I'm one of the company subject matter experts on maintenance and reliability. Uh, and my company is a fairly large company uh, and I have worldwide responsibilities. So this is someone coming in with essentially his military training and going through and volunteering. I know that's something that people in the military don't do <laughs> but on the outside, uh, if you do it, uh, it, it can be very rewarding. 
Well, without a doubt, and and thank you. You mentioned also uh, that you have a, a role with global implications and a large organization and all that. And I didn't mean to, you know, ask you if you had any jobs available right now or <laughs> anything like that. But you're speaking from from a uh, position of experience, either having been on interview panels in the past uh, with corporate America and or been a, a hiring manager. And I think. One of the one of the other things that we highlighted on a previous podcast was the exposure to different cultures, different parts of the world, the the training that you get, so you're not um, sort of stuck in Boston in your head, right? You have the ability to think about what a person in Germany or Kazakhstan or Japan or the Netherlands or, or wherever may be. Uh, thinking, feeling, or, or you know, wanting to communicate, and that cultural sensitivity, I think, specifically makes prior service members uh, able to function as ambassadors in in global organizations. So, yep. Now, nice. yep. that that being said, uh, one of the things I did want to uh, stress is that uh, the the pharmaceutical biotech companies uh, are hiring um, and uh, it's, it's important work. So uh, for, for any veteran out there, um, I would definitely uh, suggest it. So show up, have a, have a tie on if you're a guy or dress nicely. If you're a lady, you know, make sure your shoes are polished, do your research network with other folks um, around. I haven't, come in contact with a veteran that I know yet in my entire life who's not willing to help another veteran. So this that's one of the reasons why this podcast, I think, is already starting to gain some popularity and going to be more popular because it's all about veterans helping other veterans. So you're not really as alone as you might feel coming off of active duty. Mm-hmm. You know, people might say, oh, you're a quitter or whatever, you know, and that's uh, sour grapes, maybe because you're doing something that other people wish that they either had the fortitude to do or just have never had the opportunity and and don't want to do. So I think that's important to say that uh, folks aren't alone and, you know, we're out here to help. So moving on to a couple more questions here, Scott, and we're kind of wrapping things up here. What guidance would you share with corporate hiring managers? Now flipping it around, we talked about what, what advice you would give to veterans transitioning out of the service, but what guidance would you give corporate hiring managers about veterans that they need to know to get the best military fit for the, sorry, the positions they're seeking to fill? Well, and when you look at it, I think there's some misconceptions in uh, the, the corporate world about uh, what military service is like. Uh, a lot of people think, oh, it's regimented, you know, you, ju- you just do what you're told to do. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, you know, you, you're just like in this little bucket and you have walls and, you know, there's just this misconception because people really don't understand, you know, the, the day-to-day what's going on. Um, and I, I went through uh, and, you know, read something, and this was uh, a, a case study about uh, 
uh, someone on an aircraft carrier on the flight deck of an aircraft carrier. So it very visible, you know, you're, you're out there, um, your, your head is on a swivel, but there's, there's three kind of reporting relationships that are um, very prevalent and uh, brought through. So the first one is, you know, you have your, your line division, whoever you're reporting to on a regular basis, you know, and I would say it's more of an administrative type structure. Uh, and that's, you know, here's my supervisor or my manager, my supervisor, uh, you know, down to the, you know, floor level people, you know, there's the admin piece, but then there's the operations piece, uh, you know, where you're going through, you're actually doing something uh, constructive to go through and perform a mission. Um, so you, you're out of that, you know, uh, strict hierarchical structure, and now it's more of a collaborative structure. And you have, uh, you know, people from all gamuts, people with a lot of experience, uh, people with not a lot of experience, uh, working together to get something done. And with the aircraft carrier, you know, getting planes off to do a mission or, or landing them. But then there is a, a separate structure after that. And I, I'll say uh, it's, a, it's a QA or reactional structure where if something happens, you're expected to go through and take action if something goes wrong. And uh, this is something where the lowest person uh, in the organization can stop the operation if they see something that's unsafe. They have the authority and the responsibility that if they see something to uh, take action. So you could be the, the lowest guy around and have a major impact on the operation. And if you, you in fact, stopped an accident from happening, you're rewarded for it. Um, you know, in, in people think, uh, or at least a lot of people, I think, don't uh, see that. They see military, oh, you get orders. But, you know, in most cases, you're thinking on your feet, whether you're, um, you know, someone out on a, a patrol somewhere, uh, you know, in the Army, uh, in the Navy, monitoring operations, uh, in the Air Force, doing, oper uh, you know, flight operations. Um, there's a whole lot of dynamic stuff that you have to deal with, um, on a regular basis. So think outside the box because a lot of the people that are veterans that are applying for these positions, they thought outside the box on a regular basis. Oh, with, without a doubt, I think it's a great point too, right? Because the orders stop where the orders stop. It's not go do this thing. And, and then you put, you know, one foot in front of the other, and then you pick up your rifle or, or in your case, your, your wrench, or you're turning the steam valves on the submarine, or I'm, you know, putting, getting the hat on for, for diving or whatever. It, it, it all goes out the window. Like Mike Tyson says, as soon as you get punched in the mouth, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so mission accomplishment is not by following you know, a specific set of guidelines. Now, maintenance and reliability, predictive, preventive, you know, that's that's well-documented. But once you're out uh, doing your thing, it requires a fair amount of ingenuity 
to accomplish the mission. And um, certainly in, in the salvage world and the diving world, that was one of the things that we counted on the most. But uh, there are countless examples of that. Up armoring Humvees in the first Gulf War. I mean, figuring out how to get from point A to point B on horseback instead of helicopter. I mean, all that type of stuff is is ingrained in yep. in the modern military veteran. So oh. fantastic. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, and just thinking about uh, processes um, and a lot of things, and I'll just go to maintenance and reliability. The military is light years ahead of the civilian world. Um, and a lot of... Uh, studies you see on reliability, you know, the United Airlines study, uh, but there was also a study on submarines uh, and, you know, I was on there. So in the 1980s, we were doing vibration monitoring. We were doing infrared, um, you know, we were doing uh, x-rays on, on different uh, parts of the steam plant. We were doing motor current analysis. We were doing all these things in the 80s, and we just were like, oh, this is the way you do it. And when I came out, I was floored by, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing this in the civilian world? Um, and it took me a, a long time to figure out that, you know, there's the cost justification to do some of these things. But a lot of the things that people are exposed to um, in the military, um, you, you could be a trendsetter, uh, you know, coming out in the civilian world. No, without a doubt. I, I'm still shocked to this very day coming across industries where you're like, wow, that could be a pretty interesting or, or perhaps thrilling or a dangerous place to work. And you get in there and you find out that, you know, there's nothing like what you had in the military. I think cost certainly is, is a part of it, but it's also an appreciation for maintenance and reliability that, you know, some sometimes doesn't reach the, the standard of, of care or consideration that, you know, we'd like it to in, yep. in the civilian world. Well, and this is something that a lot of people have seen if they've ever gone to an air show uh, and everybody loves the Thunderbirds and the blue angels. Uh, you know, I'm partial to the Blue Angels because of the Navy background, but that's a different story. Um, but during the taxi out before they perform, they make an announcement and they said they have never canceled a show due to a maintenance issue. So if you look at it, they are, are saying that those planes going up in the air are well-maintained and that they're, they're gonna perform their mission and they bring it right out in front to everybody at that air show to say maintenance is important and because of our maintainers, we are able to perform our mission. They don't want them worrying about uh, you know, whether or not their turbines are gonna spin the right way when they're wingtip to wingtip, right? You know, inches away from, from certain death. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's, I had not heard that, Scott. That's really interesting. And it's, you know, it goes to the appreciation, right? For great, fantastic maintenance and reliability and the folks that are, are doing that. 
every yep. day. All right. Keeping, keeping everybody safe. All right, my friend. Well, we've got, I've got one final question to, to uh, leave you with or to ponder and, and answer here. Is there anything that we didn't cover today that you'd like to relate to listeners, either vets or those looking to connect with them that you think uh, might also be valuable? So uh, for the, the people who are coming out uh, from the service, uh, there's veterans everywhere. Um, a lot of times they, they don't go through and uh, you bring it up or, or show it, but they're everywhere. But it's, uh, I, I have to say that you, you can almost tell uh, who the veterans are because of the way they carry themselves and the, the types of questions they ask. And, and once you know them, and I've been in many meetings where uh, there's been other veterans and you look at what's going on and you go through and you can just look at each other and, you know, have that connection uh, because you know how it's been um, and uh, you know how it can be. Well, fantastic. Well said, Scott. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for your service as well and your willingness to, to come on this podcast. I think it uh, is worth saying or, or repeating that anytime that we can connect with anybody who's struggling out there trying to find their place in the world, either coming out of the military or, or maybe they've been out for a while and they're still trying to, to find their way, we will help people get through that and keep them, keep them out of being homeless, keep them out of being drunk all the time or whatever drugs and, and then ultimately uh, keep them out of the roles of uh, suicide that we see all the, all the time. So thank you for being a fellow veteran and helping out on this podcast. And, and we certainly appreciate your time today and you being willing to share. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, you want to mention the, the verge, is it verge or merge? Sorry. Merge. Merge. Uh, merge. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and again, I mentioned it earlier to, to scratch the itch on uh, my, my aviation or love of aviation. Um, I uh, help out with a, a different podcast. Uh, I'm the researcher for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, which is run by a, a veteran, uh, former Navy, uh, naval aviator, uh, Vincent Aiello. Um, where he was in for 25 years. He was a Top Gun instructor, has a, a lot of experience. And uh, we're on our fifth year now uh, of doing the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And then one of the things that uh, I had a, a large part in is the production of uh, a sister podcast uh, called The Merge, where it was an in-depth story about uh, two planes colliding above the, the desert in Nevada. Uh, in the what led up to it, what happened, and what the aftermath was. Uh, so I think it's a very compelling story. Oh, without a doubt. I listened to the first uh, two sections of that. I think I've got one more to go, but uh, very intense and, and well done. So that's really, really cool. So thanks for mentioning that, Scott. Again, thanks for being on uh, with us today. Appreciate your friendship as well. And uh, yeah, we are all finished here for today and, and we'll uh, move on to the next one. But thanks. Thanks for having me. Take care. All right, Scott. See you. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Veterans Connected. We will see you back for another episode very soon. In between, we hope to see you in the Veterans Connected community group where you can meet Eric and fellow podcast guests and share with other industry veterans at mobiusconnect.com. And we hope to see you there.